This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. As a plant-based cheese company, Dea has never talked about beef in an ad before because someone somewhere once had a beef with saying beef and plant-based together. So putting a slice of Dea cheese on a beef burger, not okay. Well, our delicious melty cheese has a beef with your beef about beef. Because any step towards plant-forward eating is a step in the right direction. Daya, 100% plant-based, even if you're not. Now made with Daya Oat Cream Blend. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Hello, and welcome to Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Jason Goodger, commissioning editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. In this episode, I talk to neuroscientist Siddhartha Hibero about the science of dreams. So, obviously, we can't talk about dreaming without talking about sleep. So I think this is, this is the, the sort of obvious place to start. So, as a neuroscientist, you know, what's going on in our brains and our bodies as we fall asleep? Our brains are very active when we are asleep, and, and the brains are doing different things uh, across the night. So we usually have four to five full cycles of sleep uh, that begin with a dreamy-like state that then transits into a, a, something that is more like an image-absent situation with sometimes some thoughts related to regular life, chores we need to do. And then we go into full-blown vivid imagery uh, that what we, what we really call dreaming is what happens during rapid eye movement sleep. Of course, uh, we can extend that notion to imagination during the waking life, daydreaming, because the same brain regions involved in night dreaming are involved in waking dreaming. So you mentioned there are um, REM sleep. So I think that's something that a lot of people will have heard of, but they might not know actually what's, what's going on in our bodies and our brains when we're in this stage of sleep. So could you tell me about that, please? Yeah, this is what the French called paradoxical sleep. And why paradoxical? Because even though the body is very still, the brain is very active. And some parts of the brain, they have to do with, with emotions, memories, uh, and, and the visual representations of those uh, are quite active. So when we are during REM sleep, uh, and that 
I must say it's for adults. For children, it's more complicated. But when we adults are in, in REM sleep, we are very likely to be having a very vivid dream. And, and the name comes from rapid eye movement sleep, uh, a discovery in the 1950s that children, and then, of course, it was seen in adults as well, move their eyes uh, in, in, in very fast and, and strange manners during uh, this particular sleep phase, as opposed to the previous phase in which we barely we move our eyes quite slowly. Uh, and, and this is accompanied by this very deep form of sleep that is very restorative, very important for, for uh, uh, health, both uh, at the level of the body, at the level of the mind. But it's not enough to process all the memories of the waking life and especially the emotional memories. So we need REM sleep. We need this last phase of sleep in the cycle. And, and across the night, this, this distribution of states change. So as we go through the night, we have less and less of the non-dreaming sleep, the so-called slow-wave sleep, and, and more and more of the dreaming sleep, the REM sleep. So what's going on in our brains when we switch into this stage of sleep? Yeah, there are major changes. Uh, when we are in slow-wave sleep, we have sort of a battle between different neurotransmitters. Uh, acetylcholine is being released, and sometimes uh, periodically and, 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 and with, a, with a decrescent uh, frequency, noradrenaline or norepinephrine is released, as well as serotonin. Uh, when we transit into REM sleep, acetylcholine goes up, noradrenaline and serotonin go down, and dopamine actually goes up, and it has a lot to do with the beginning of REM sleep. Uh, and, and dopamine is very important because it allows for the brain to signal reward and punishment, for the brain to signal the outcomes of the, of the actions. And, and dreaming has a lot to do with the simulation of, of outcomes of possible actions. How about the different regions of the brain, that are in, for example, the visual cortex? What's going on there when we're in this stage? The visual cortex is, is highly active, uh, especially what we call association areas, areas in the cerebral cortex that are more removed from the, the retina input. Um, but uh, most of the visual areas are, are interconnected and, and there's clearly a preference for visual experiences in most people's dreams. Um, but, but of course, you can have dreams of other modalities as well. We can have uh, dreams that involve uh, somesthesia, that involved that involve uh, gustatory uh, uh, experiences or, or sounds, etc., uh, and and you can have all of that in one dream as well. But that is 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 a very particular situation that is happening at this particular moment in the brain of that particular person. Uh, so it's it's quite specific. Um, other areas are involved as well in dreaming: subcortical areas, regions such as the hippocampus, which is important for the acquisition of new memories. And, and for connecting those memories with pre-existing memories, uh, and the amygdala, which is important for us to tell the difference between uh, positive, uh, pleasant situations and, and, and negative, uh, aversive situations. So all of that is involved and uh, engaged and active during REM sleep. But as important as, as those brain regions are, we need to talk about, about what's not activated during REM sleep, which has to do with its bizarreness. And those are, uh, this mainly involves regions in the frontal cortex that have to do with the inhibition of certain behaviors, with uh, decision-making, with um, making choices uh, and, and, be, and, and, and navigate the situations with, with criticism. So 
since many of those regions in the prefrontal cortex are deactivated during REM sleep, we tend to not be surprised or shocked by the crazy stuff that happens during dreaming. So that's the, that's the sort of um, the the theoretical bit. So that's all really fascinating and really you know really quite complicated. But how do you how do you study this? Do you put um, people in brain scanners when they're sleeping and that sort of thing? How did we find this out? Well, it's a combination of techniques. In the fifties, a lot was done, and 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 since then, and until today, a lot is done with regular electroencephalographic uh, recording, so EEG is used. Um, people have studied uh, sleep and dreaming inside brain scanners. It's not a simple uh, task because, of course, uh, they're quite noisy and somewhat claustrophobic, but it, it has been done uh, and use uh, PET scans and, and, and a variety of techniques that allowed, uh, both in humans and as well as in animal models, that allowed for, for all this, uh, you know, wealth of knowledge to come together. Something I've been arguing is that in the past 40 years, we really learned a lot about this. And and when you put it all together, it allows us to make some bridges between uh, reality at the biological level and and the inner reality of psychology, the the mental reality that everybody has inside the inner world that is revealed during dreaming. One of the things that I think is really interesting about dreams is how they're both universal, but incredibly personal at the same time. So following on from that, one argument that you also make in the book that I also found really interesting is that dreaming evolved as human culture evolved. Yes, this is super important because uh, we have to first recognize the explosive nature of cultural accumulation in our lineage. Uh, you know, in t- biological terms, 300,000 years is, is quite little for evolution. Uh, and, and this is the span of, of Homo sapiens in the world, as far as we know, with the, with the fossil evidence that we have right now. Uh, a little bit above that. Uh, of course, we can talk about the human experience, and then we're talking about different species of humans, and then we can go back to half a million years ago, or even before. And, and the question is, how did we change so fast? So we changed so fast because we were able to share, share knowledge in a very different manner and produce new knowledge on a very fast scale. And so when we, when we look at cultural innovation in the past, say, 300,000 years, you see that this is like an exponential. It's just really accelerating more and more and more. And, and in the past few thousand years, this is very obvious. Now, what allowed that? What is that cause all that? Of course, language is involved. And one thing I've been contending is that uh, dreaming is, is necessary for that because we, we cannot imagine new solutions, new things, new futures, uh, when we are being chased by a predator or, or working very hard to, to do something that is t- tremendously needed. We need to create, and we actually are able to create when we relax, when we are either daydreaming or night dreaming. And one thing I've been uh, proposing is that it was the dreaming with very emotional situations, and in particular, dreaming with uh, the deceased those in your family that have died and that you loved so much, this experience that is still very moving to any person in this current contemporary society, urban society that doesn't give a damn to dreams. But in the past, this was a very, very critical experience for knowledge to be shared and advanced. And, and, and why I say that? Because pretty much all terrestrial mammals and perhaps all mammals dream, but we are the only ones that can share dreams. 
and use language to share that. And those experiences in the early morning, people sharing their dreams and telling dreams with, with ancestors that, that taught new songs, new names, new strategies, new roots, which something that is very well documented in ethnography among uh, contemporary hunter-gatherers. Uh, this was a very strong way to, to move culture forward. So, yeah, this is maybe a little bit of a tangent from where we've been going, but I just thought you mentioned something interesting there, and a lot of people would want to know. So you said, all mammals dream. So, so do other animals dream, and how do we know that? Well, so, of course, uh, if it's not a human, we can only infer uh, dreaming from, from the behaviour and the physiology that we can observe. Uh, in the 60s, uh, French neuroscientist Michel Jouvet showed that if you experimentally disinhibit neurons that block muscle movements during REM sleep in cats, cats will act out something that seems like a, a dream. They will pounce and they will you know, attack and, and, and do all sort, many sorts of species-specific behaviors that, that really give us the impression they are dreaming. Of course, I don't need to say that to pet owners. Um, but this is to say that this was addressed in the laboratory, you know, uh, half a century ago. Uh, so we, we have good reason to believe that uh, most mammals dream, perhaps not the aquatic mammals that don't seem to have REM sleep. But that's, I would say, we, need, we still need to know more about their sleep before we, we nail it down. Um, but possibly um, birds as well. They also have REM sleep. And reptiles, when they are quite specific temperature ranges, um, and recently, in our own laboratory, we reported that something that we call active sleep, that is the behavioral equivalent of REM sleep, occurs in the octopus. Uh, so so th- it, is, it is possible that many, many different animals, uh, different types of animals dream. But of course, if we are to, to take the physiology and the behavior seriously, then those dreams, if they exist, must be quite short, because in all those groups except mammals, uh, active sleep lasts for uh, very little, for dozens of seconds to up to a couple of minutes. In humans, though, we can go up to 40 minutes, 50 minutes of continuous REM sleep, uh, and the platypus even more. So, so we, we need to think that as far as dreaming is a, is a long experience able to simulate sophisticated behavioral strategies and situations, uh, it's a mammalian thing. So, yeah, you just mentioned there then that we, we can go into REM sleep for periods of up to 50 minutes. But um, something that I wanted to ask from a sort of personal perspective is I often find um, I'll go to sleep, I'll have a dream which seems to last for hours and I'll wake up and I'll only have been asleep for 15 minutes. Do we know anything about that? Because that, that's something I find really fascinating. This is a very old question that is still being, you know, debated uh, on several on several fronts. Um, certainly, we we have the impression uh, during dreaming that time can be compressed, but also slowed down. Those two experiences exist. The compression of time has been people have has have people have proposed that it comes from the mer editing of the scenes. Like I was dreaming, I was in New York, and then suddenly it was Rio de Janeiro. Uh, and this this cut in space, it it, it may be interpreted uh, by the dreamer as a as a as a temporal gap. Uh, so so this is one thing. Another thing is that uh, people have been proposing for decades that the way you move your eyes during dreaming is actually reflecting the the scanning of the of the uh, the the dream scene. 
and and there's evidence in both directions. There's recent evidence in in, in rodents that this may be true. But there's also evidence in rodents that uh, the neuronal processing that occurs during sleep may be uh, compressed. So I think it's still, this is at the frontier. Uh, uh, and I think it's the more we know about the experience of dreaming, the more we, we learn about the psychology of dreaming, uh, the, this will become more, the bridges with physiology will become more clear. Another question you probably get asked quite a lot is why do some people seem to be able to remember their dreams more than others? I remember my dreams nearly every night, whereas a lot of people I know say they rarely remember their dreams. Right. So, of course, the, there's many different possibilities there. One is genetics. The other is um, life habits. <laughs> right. So if you, if you, do, do you sleep early? No, I, I sleep very late. Very late. Do you wake yeah. up late? Yeah. Okay. So that, that helps to remember dreams. It, it's really bad oh, for remembering okay. dreams if you wake up um, on a hurry, uh, with a beep, uh, you know, th those are things that will make your REMs, your last REM sleep episode shortened or perhaps absent. So this is one thing. Um, the other thing is, has to do with, uh, for example, substances. If you have a lot of alcohol at night, that will curtail your REM sleep. Uh, if you have cannabis at night, this will impair your ability to remember dreams, perhaps not having them, but remembering them or, or putting together the, the report on them. Um, and, and, other, and sleep pills, sleep pills are bad for, for dream uh, reports. So there are many different things there. Uh, a lot of exercise at night or um, uh, too much food at night. All those things can have an impact. Uh, on top of that, there, there's a lot of genetic differences between us and, and people have different propensities to, to dream and to have specific kinds of dreams. Some people always have a certain kind of dream. Some people never had that kind of dream, have, have that kind of dream. Um, some people have a propensity for lucid dreaming, which is when people are conscious that they're dreaming and can control the dreams to some extent uh, and something that can be learned and practiced. So, so there are many, many differences there. But one thing that we can say is that in, in contemporary urban societies, we are at sleep loss and dream loss. And, and one thing I've been proposing and defending and actually to some extent suffering about, is that we are in peril. We are, the, the situation we're facing in the world has a lot to do with sleep loss and dream loss. What is the situation? The situation is, is that of tremendous, tremendous accumulation of knowledge, tremendous accumulation of capital, and tremendous accumulation of despair. Is it, isn't it so paradoxical that we can we have all this potential and, and we see no good future ahead? This seems like a physiological problem, an emotional problem, and, and it has to do with our abandonment of sleep as something sacred that we should uh, protect at all costs. And why? Because everybody needs to work and, and have fun. Uh, two, the abandonment of re remembering one's own dream. This is the, the situation you'll find with most people is that they are disconnected from their dreams. And third, and very importantly, even when people are able to remember the dreams and record them on, on dream diaries, they often fail to do something that was essential for our ancestors and is still essential for most uh, people outside of the contemporary urban society, which is to share dreams. She, dreams have been important in our lineage because they allow us to make 
individual desires and fears collective. If we don't have this kind of bond, where are we going? And people are feeling more and more lonely. And this is probably coming from a very sheer lack of sleep and dream. That's really interesting. You know, you make a lot of interesting points there. So what do we know about what influences the content of our dreams? We know a lot of, about that, and we know that it's, this content is both meaningful and, and analyzable. You can figure out where things are coming from, and many of them are coming from waking experiences, what Freud called the day residue. There's also some, some chaos there that has to do with not only the deactivation of prefrontal brain areas, but also with the lack of norepinephrine during REM sleep, which will make the the dissemination of electrical activity during REM sleep more free than it is during waking. So there's more freedom when you're in REM sleep and, and unlikely associations may pop out. And so you, you, you have to, when you interpret your own dream and, the, and the, the person that is really well qualified to interpret one's dream is that is the dreamer himself or herself. Uh, of course, can be aided by professionals or by friends or family, but you're, you're the only person that can really say, well, this makes sense to me or not. And, and of course, a dream doesn't have to have a single meaning. It may have multiple polysemic meanings. But um, there's chaos there. There's some degree of noise there. And this is important for creativity. This is important to find uh, solutions in when when in a cornered situation. And when we, you are when you're not under very strong pressure of either fear or desire, dreams tend to be very multiple. They tend to be uh, a, a collection of of images and and symbols that make sense individually, but sometimes not as a whole. However, when you're facing something that is very meaningful, that involves a very strong desire or fear, dreams tend to coalesce. They, they tend to come as, as a whole. They tend to come as a very poignant story that you can carry for your, for your whole life, in fact. And this is very well documented in, by anthropology, how this is still so for so many different societies in the world. So sort of on the... As I was saying, I'm a very vivid dreamer, which is great if I have a good dream. But also, I do sometimes suffer from nightmares, which you know are really unpleasant. So, what, why you know what? Why do we get nightmares? What's what's their purpose? How do they come about? Nightmares are probably the the grandmother of all dreams. Um, one thing I've been proposing is a narrative, a, a plausible narrative about how dreams evolved and this is of course in the context of of all the fields and has to do with uh, a theory put forth by Antti Revonsuo uh, and Katja Valli in Finland uh, 22 years ago and this is the threat simulation theory so he proposes uh, and, and proposes based on, on on dream data from children in the world in, in different countries it proposes that the most ancient purpose of dreams was to warn us against impending threats, was to simulate possible futures that were quite dangerous and allow us to change the course of action so as to avoid that danger. Uh, of course, this is only uh, explanation for, uh, say, half of the dreams that have a, 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 a high anxiety tonus, and this has been measured across the globe. But, you know, we need to talk about the other side of the coin, which is pleasure, which is expectation of reward. So a lot of, of, of dreams have, have to do not specifically with having the rewards, the, the classical Freudian 
uh, wish fulfilling dream is is quite rare uh, in most occasion on most occasions. But the pursuit of rewards. So many many dreams. In fact, uh, a majority of dreams have a structure that has to do with goal-oriented behaviors with uh, reward seeking and for whatever reason you may say oh i, I spent the whole dream uh going from here to there searching for a person this is quite quite common or or, or trying to to find a certain object or to be in a certain place uh and and often we don't get there um, but 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 sometimes we do and and this can be very meaningful when people are really committed to introspection when they're committed to mapping their inner worlds, they're unconscious, using dreams as a tool. So there's, a, there's another aspect. One thing, another thing that struck out when I, to me when I was reading the book was how you said dreams have like um, a kind of life-changing power. And the example that you gave was the person who um, had a dream that they were in a doctor's um, office and they were shown a, a scan of their lungs and they had lung cancer. So that led them to, to stop smoking. I mean, is that a common thing? I think that's fascinating. Yes, uh, and this came actually from the from Dr. Demant, a great researcher that um, discovered the link between uh, REM sleep and dreaming in the, back in the the fifties. Um, so this is very common, but it's not so common anymore in urban contemporary society because we are we're cutting our connections with with all this tradition. But if you look into the literature of the antiquity, the Middle Ages, across cultures and religions, and if you look into the experiences of, of Amerindian populations or Australian Aboriginal populations, you'll find this very strong connection. And you'll find that people pursue and seek uh, these grand dreams, these, these major dreams, these big dreams, something that uh, was described and studied by Carl Jung uh, in the context of in the context of psychology, so uh, most of us have this experience during childhood and adolescence, but this is something that is lost when we go into adulthood and we go into the demands of work and time and and, and social schedule. Uh, and and in, indeed, I I don't see how we can go much further <laughs> if we continue on this path because it's a path that disconnects us from the things that make us meaningful what makes us meaningful is not that we acquire more stuff what makes us meaningful is that we have meaningful experiences that are well connected with our past and in harmony with our past to as, as much as we can make it happen and and this is something that dream is really good at dream dreaming involves the activation of the brain areas that are not only necessary for storytelling for imagination for remembering stuff for but also for having empathy, for, for being able to imagine other people's minds and put ourselves in their shoes. This is super important for, for society to thrive. If we don't have empathy for our neighbors, for people that are, are not personally known, this is not going to go well. It's not going well. Look at, let's look at what's happening in Ukraine. So we need to, we need to in that sense, go back to ancestral, uh, time-tested, um, uh, quite healthy practices uh, that involved treating sleep and dreaming as very important, not just for the individual, but for the collective. We were never alone. The human lineage is, is, a, is a lineage of groups of people. 
And the current society is isolating people. And dream telling was the glue. Dream telling was bringing people together, making everybody aware of the individual's fears and desires. So when we are aware of the others, of the other people around us, and we know how they uh, face challenges and what is difficult for them and how they can help you also, we create the glue, we create the social uh, uh, sense of purpose. And, and we're, we're really lacking that. And we're going, uh, I think, very fast in the direction that, was, that we started nearly 500 years ago, which is to, to make money God, to put money in the place of God and go in that direction so fast that now we have hundreds of millions of people starving in the world. And we have 10 people, the richest men in the world, that just doubled their wealth during the pandemic. So what is this? What is going on? And of course, if you go and talk to really rich people, you find that they're people too. They're suffering as well. And usually they're suffering for some money-related issue. Most of them are suffering because they wanted more, even more. And this is so prized in society. And the fact that we cannot really understand how crazy it is has to do with sleep loss and, and dream loss. Obviously, there's so much that's unknown about dreaming. But as somebody who researches this, what would be the number one thing that you would like to know that we don't know? Oh, well, I think there's... <laughs> well, I'm fascinated by lucid dreaming um, because when you are in lucid dreams, you can sort of navigate your own unconscious and, and you can defy all sorts of, of laws of nature because you're in your inner world. So this really allows you to go further deep inside so that you can access memories that were not accessible it also allows you to imagine things that are really far-fetched. So I, I think it, it may work as a very good mental workspace for the next uh, few millennia. If we are able to solve the riddle that is facing us so, so menacing that, uh, that, that we need to, to figure it out. So basically we need to understand the competition was cool when, when, food and everything else were scarce, were scarce. But now that there's abundance, we need to, to do differently. We need to adapt. And I think if we are able to eat well, exercise, sleep well, and dream well, and share dreams, we'll just do it. It's going to be, people are going to look in the future and say, oh, those guys that around the invention of the internet, they, they got it. They figured it out. And now everybody's happy here. We can really make it happen. And I think that lucid dreaming will be a tool for that. Uh, however, um, we will need to first rescue regular dreaming. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius. That was neuroscientist Siddhartha Hibero. If you want to know more about the science of dreams, check out his book, The Oracle of the Night. The current issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. Pick up a copy in store or visit sciencefocus.com. 